everyone and welcome to episode 55 of the retrospectors podcast siberia james are you keen to be talking about point and click adventure games this is our very first one yeah actually i know how much you dislike this genre at a baseline so i've always been uh, kind of hesitant to dive into this genre with you pat i feel like uh, any episode on point and clicks that we do is just going to be ragging on them from t- start to finish i mean i don't think I hate point-and-click adventure games. Like, I've played, you know, Monkey Island, and I've played uh, The Longest Journey. I, I've, I've played uh, a few of the classics, and I certainly didn't hate them. It's just I have that obsession with that one Old Man Murray article about it, and I think it just <laughs> makes an excellent point. These point-and-click adventure games and many adventure games in that ilk have just complete nonsense in them masquerading as puzzles and i really enjoy puzzle games and i think in a lot of cases point and click adventure games end up being just bad puzzle games does that mean the genre is inherently flawed maybe not there 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 might be good and bad ones but uh I'm not I'm not as foaming at the mouth as I am uh, as I was with JRPGs. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week we are doing Siberia, so we'll find out if this one has or has not stood the test of time. Yeah, we are James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, James and I play through a classic game of the past uh, with the intention of reviewing it and discussing it and talking about whether it's truly stood the test of time. This is not a nostalgia podcast. We're not here to celebrate a game or um, appreciate it in the the history of it or the merits of it when it was released we simply want to know uh, whether this game has truly stood the test of time and whether it's worth your time to play today as james said uh, we are playing siberia so siberia was developed by a french company called microids and was released in 2002 for pc xbox and playstation 2 And then it saw a bunch of releases on a variety of consoles, uh, the later Xbox and PlayStation consoles, on the 3DS even, and uh, most recently it saw a release on the Nintendo Switch. So just on a very basic level, it's a semi-surrealistic point-and-click adventure game where you travel through fictional parts of France, Germany, and Russia, kind of alternate history slash semi-surrealist. It's it's kind of a version of of Earth and a version of Europe, uh, but there are some very different things about it. And uh, you're following in the wake of a man with a genius for mechanical clock-like mechanisms, and that also influences the, I guess, aesthetics of the game. Um, before we get into the discussion about this game, its story and its atmosphere and all that kind of stuff, I think it's worth touching on how we played this game, because James and I realised we were playing... Uh, rather differently in the end. Uh, so we have slightly different experiences. So, so James, how did you play Siberia this fortnight? Yeah, so originally we'd both planned to play uh, on the Steam release of Siberia 1, which, uh, you know, both of Pat and I downloaded and started to get running. Um, and then I ran into a lot of roadblocks actually getting it to run on my computer. And after trawling through the Steam forums for quite a while, I found out that you can't play uh, the game very effectively if you're running a 1440p monitor, which I uh, recently purchased and has been an ongoing hassle every time I uh, try to play one of these old 
games for the show, funnily enough. Um, so I, after spending about an hour trying to get it working, uh, gave up because I realized there was a $4 version of the game uh, on my Switch. So I, you know, bought it again uh, for a pretty cheap price, I downloaded it, and it worked, you know, flawlessly. Um, the Switch version is actually pretty good. I don't know if it was in your version of the game on PC, but there was actually a little menu that you could drop down that told you what your current objectives were in the game world. So um, I found it helped a lot with, you know, uh, that issue you run into a lot in point and click adventure games where you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Um, you can play the game either in, you know, handheld mode or docked with a controller. Uh, or you can just use the touch screen and play it as if it is, you know, the original gameplay where, you know, it acts as a mouse, essentially. Um, I played the game start to finish using the control stick uh, because I hadn't actually realized you could use the touch screen. Um, and I kind of feel a bit silly now because it's definitely the better way to play if you do pick up the Switch version, in my opinion. Yeah, so the PC version didn't have that objective drop-down menu, or if it did, it remained hidden from me for my entire playthrough. I think the other notable difference is uh, I read that the Nintendo Switch has a way to highlight uh, items and, uh, you know, environmental things to interact with. Did, did you have that turned on? Um, no, I did boot up the Switch this afternoon after you mentioned that to me, and I can confirm if you're playing in touchscreen mode, um, there are arrows all over the screen to say where you can and can leave the area um, and objects in the game world do have like a highlight around them so you can very easily tell what you can pick up and what you can't um, which is actually probably really useful uh, for this style of game I think. Yes and uh, we'll we'll get more we'll, ha we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the gameplay discussion part of it but yeah point and click adventure games a large part of it is being able to identify items in the environment that you can interact with if you're playing the pc version you kind of have to do a bit of hovering your mouse around the screen to find things if things are just highlighted for you like in the switch version that just doesn't exist you know where you can click to get results yeah absolutely so the other big difference that uh, i wanted to highlight was um i played in a different language to james so one of the advantages of playing on PC is that you can play in different languages and with a little bit of trickery you can set it up so you're playing with subtitles because the game doesn't natively include English subtitles. So because the game was originally a French title I elected to play in French and will include a guide to playing in French with English subtitles. But essentially what you do is you download certain files in, um, in French, then you change back to English and you move those files into the right folder. It's all pretty straightforward, but you download uh, both the French and English files and then you can swap them however you choose. Normally we, we do an explanation and everything, but I think since we're talking about language, we may as well jump into the nature of the voice acting. Uh, so I just want to say the French voice acting was fantastic. I was very impressed with it from start to finish. Um, there were one or two voice actors that weren't, you know, great, but that were still good. And the actors that were good that were fantastic. Uh, I did a little bit of listening to the English voice acting, and it seems like while Kate is well voice acted, many of the side characters aren't nearly of the same quality as her. So James, did you um did you have anything to say about the English voice acting? Did you have any issues with it? Was it great? Was it good? Was it fine? 
Yeah, so it doesn't usually come up very often on this show, but I, I'm pretty critical of voice acting in general um, myself when I play a lot of games, and I really didn't have any issues with the English voice acting in this game. I did think there were some uh, that were subpar, especially in the first areas of the game, uh, but later on there are quite a few voice actors that do add a lot of character to the characters that they're portraying, uh, notably a lot of the automatons and a couple of the more eccentric characters have some pretty good voice actors behind them so you know on the whole i didn't really have any issues um i thought it was perfectly acceptable nothing spectacular um i will point it there's one more like readability issue uh when you're watching um an anime or a foreign film they tend to segment the subtitles far better so you'll only get like a sentence or two at the time and it's much it's pretty easy to match up reading that sentence with what the character is saying uh it's not nearly as easy in siberia often you get a massive chunk of text that starts scrolling down your screen and you have to really concentrate to match the voice acting with the English subtitles that are appearing on the screen. It is a little easier than something like anime because they're both root Latin languages. So a lot of the words you can match up if you lose your place. But it at times I definitely lost it and had to refind um, where the where it was matching up. I had a big problem with the subtitles on the English version because the characters talk a lot slower than the text scrolls so mm. you know the text scrolls out of view uh oftentimes before the characters set the line which was really really annoying i'm surprised they didn't uh, fix that in the release but not a major issue if you're listening to it in your native language yeah and that's never an issue if you're playing on pc and playing with the subtitles because the french language matches up perfectly with the subtitles I recommend that if you're playing on Steam that you should play with the French voice acting, but it seems clear that the English voice acting isn't horrendous or anything. Maybe it's a case like it is for Sekiro, where while the Japanese voice acting is superior, the English voice acting is still um, is still quite good. If you're not so hot about the French recommendations and you can get it on Switch, I actually do think that the, uh, the touch mode of the Switch version is the a superior way to play the game just because of the highlighting and the fact that you know you don't need to use the analog sticks to move your characters around and you know everything just kind of works um the game never crashed on me or anything like that uh, i think point and click adventures lend themselves to handhelds really well like you can just put it down and pick it up whenever because you know you're never in a rush like it's not like sometimes you're in a fight so you don't want to pause the game it's just like a really chill lazy way to play the game and i really enjoyed it um one final thing i know we're talking about this a lot but it does impact how you play the game uh, i was playing on pc and at times i would alt tab when you alt tab this game sometimes has some serious graphical issues so you'll lose textures on the screen and a lot more concerningly um the 3d models of kate and others will start bending and folding in on themselves <laughs> into weird geometrical monstrosities it's actually a, a common glitch for a lot of these early 3d games uh, you see it when you play like resident the early resident evils and silent hills it's quite hilarious the worst one was um there's a character in a wheelchair and the wheelchair model started spinning the model around in a circle when the wheelchair went <laughs> yeah it was very disturbing um luckily 
if you kind of leave a major area there seem to be like major transition screens and minor ones so if you go through a major transition screen it resets everything back to normal <laughs> but uh if you alt tab you're going to suffer some you know temporary pain until you can get it reset but uh that was really my only technical issue that i encountered i assume that wasn't happening on the switch version. no i had no basically zero technical issues with the game whatsoever so you know that's a pretty good thing for the the console port in my mind so with that out of the way did we want to start getting into talking about siberia yeah so i think what i'll do is i'll give a brief description of the story um, then we'll jump into an explanation of kind of like how these games work for people who are unfamiliar with this style of point-and-click adventure game. And then we'll get into the discussion. Sure, let's go. So Siberia starts with you playing as an American lawyer called Kate Walker. And you've been sent to this French village called Validoline. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. It's a French village. Just bear with me. Which is a quaint little village uh, that seems to be dominated by a toy factory in this in this town's past there was this big toy factory and that informed the business of most of the town you've been sent there to uh get the signature of the owner of the toy factory to transition it to this big mega modern american toy corporation think toy world toy, toy world wants to buy out this little uh niche but you know very famously renowned mechanical toy factory. When Kate arrives, though, she finds that the lady, Anna Vorlberg, who is going to sign the contract, has just passed away. And she needs to find uh, her little brother called Hans. But Hans isn't in the town. And so begins a journey where she has to try and find Hans. And she kind of follows in the wake of Hans' life historically. She has to find and repair um, and get working uh, this mechanical steam... Sorry, this mechanical train. Almost like a toy train. It's a wind-up train. It's a clockwork uh, train, yeah. Clock, clockwork train, but one that's of life scale. And she has to try to follow him to find Hans to get him to sign this contract so that she can close the deal and move the purchase of this toy factory to this mega toy corporation. And along the way, of course, as is common in adventure games, she faces many trials and tribulations and obstacles in her path to achieving her goals. So that's the baseline story, and we will jump into a more substantial discussion of the story. But I... Uh, I kind of want to talk about... The first thing I want to talk about, the main thing I want to get into with Siberia is the atmosphere. But I think first I need to explain how these games work. So the way these games work, the way these point-and-click adventure games work and Siberia functions is it is a 2D game with 3D models where you transition from screen to screen by clicking on the edge of the screen. Kate Walker is in, say, a village, and there's a road that goes in two directions. On the screen you're on, there'll be items to interact with. And if you click on the edges of the screen, Kate will walk to the edge of the screen, transition to the next part of the village, and it will just change in a snap to the next part of the village, and there'll be other things to interact with. And they basically use trickery to get these 3D models to work on these 2D screens. You know, as you go in certain areas, she'll shrink. But it's all it's all smoke and mirrors. The backgrounds are 2D. 
all the models of the characters you're interacting with and, um, and Kate herself are 3D. So the reason I want to start here is that I think from the very beginning of the game, like the moment you get into the game, you will be struck with the beauty of Siberia. The resolutions aren't incredibly high or anything, but because the backgrounds are 2D, they're hand illustrated, and for my money, they're absolutely gorgeous. I, I think that Siberia is a very beautiful game. They generally don't have a lot going on. They're not heavily animated. They're not any more heavily animated than you would see in a visual novel like Police Noughts. But they do so much to sell the reality of these quaint European villages that I would believe that they were... That some of them I thought were photographs and maybe some of them are touch-up photographs. I'd be surprised if they wouldn't. So, James, what? how did you feel about the art style of this game? Did you, did you love it as much as I did? Did you think it was as beautiful as I did? I do agree with you about the backgrounds entirely. Siberia is a very surrealist game in a lot of ways, like the places you're going to are very almost dreamscape-like, like the, they, they're so surreal, right? Like uh, you're mm. following this guy through Europe who's left this clockwork legacy behind him uh, and the way that like he's impacted all these different towns and places that you get to visit. And the, you know, the environments you visit are just so beautiful to look at. They're incredible. I, I loved every time I got to a new town, I was just blown away by the art um i think that a point and click that has poor art and a poor setting is a point and click that no matter how good you make the puzzles or gameplay isn't one that i'm going to enjoy right this is a game where you spend you know a hundred percent of the time looking at the backgrounds looking for items looking for details about the world so you really really need to sell this to the audience in order to you know succeed at making a good point and click adventure game i think every single point and click that i've played that i've loved is one with a really unique fascinating world uh, backed up by beautiful art um, you know and just a joy to walk around in for hours and i think that siberia absolutely succeeds in this department one thing that i think has aged kind of poorly uh, is the 3d character models themselves um, they do kind of stick out like a sore thumb on this you know incredible background art sometimes when they're, you know, in the background a bit, like they're far away from the camera, you can kind of forgive it. But any time it zooms in on a character's face, you're kind of like, ugh, I don't know. It's not great, uh, in my opinion. But, you know, on the whole, blown away by the, the art direction. I do agree with that. Um, and it's particularly obvious with the stiffness of their animations. Mm. There's nothing fluid here. It is like incredibly stiff to the point where they're like turning in place. And this isn't just the automatons. This is the human beings <laughs> where you can see them physically rotate 90 degrees at a time to assume the right position to step forwards. It's pretty disconcerting. And I think that if they had been able to somehow create... 2d models it would have been even better but i i don't know how that would work they they still do fit the world they're in they're just a little um yeah they're just a little awkward uh compared to the beauty of the backgrounds one thing i think the reason that patrick picked the game for the show this week um as opposed to many other point and click adventures is that i think people were trying to sell you on the atmosphere of siberia correct 
Absolutely. When there were a few people who suggested this and every single time they used the word atmosphere to say that it is a game you should play. Yeah, so how did you feel about that on a whole? Does Siberia succeed uh, in creating this atmospheric experience? Yes, it absolutely does. And the art style is part of that, but it's also the details and the and the themes and the feel of what the game is like. Because you have small details like the ambient sound and often it's just birds chirping or in the very first town you go to it's raining and then after the rain ends you can see a few puddles on the street and it's reflecting the buildings around. But it's also in the subject matter. You're kind of pouring through or following in the wake of um, of Hans's life and the places you go are not bustling centers of activity every single one is like past its heyday you go to the university and there are like just a couple of students around a a lecturer delivers a lecture and there's like three other students in the lecture hall with you as you're listening um you go to a spa and there's barely any people there it's they're, they're all they're all ghost towns like you can feel that at some stage all of these places were beautiful and bustling and filled with people and activity and excitement. But now it's just kind of sad, like not in the sense that, you know, you break down crying, but in the sense that these places, like the world has passed them by. I felt this way when I went to England. I unfortunately haven't been to the rest of Europe, but I felt that kind of melancholy at you know, this is not part of the modern world. This belongs to another age. It's very whimsical. It's like there's this sense of wistfulness throughout the entire game, I suppose, Um, because Mm. you're kind of following two timelines at the same time. While you never really, you know, visually see the second timeline, um, as you go to each of these places that Hans, the character you're chasing, uh, throughout the game has gone to um, you always you hear these stories about his exploits about the thing the great mechanical contraptions he's created that have you know changed the course of history for the people who lived here now and uh, you know in the past and up until now you know it's like there's two versions of these places and one of them is created in your mind through you know old journals that you've read and accounts that people have told you through the game you get this very I guess, like, solid grasp of what this place was like previously, although you never actually get to see it, you know, in the prime of its life. And there's something kind of, you know, melancholy about that. It's really beautiful in a way, I think. Yeah, and it's a consistent theme throughout because you see the, you've got the opera singer who's, you know, lost her voice and has passed her glory days. And you try and get her to that live that moment of being a glorious opera singer once more. And you've got the university professors who once, you know, ran this big, bustling, busy university, and now it's a shell of its former self. I think that there's a... There's kind of a criticism hidden in this game, a criticism of capitalism and the modern world, because Kate gets very caught up in pursuing her adventure and the deeper she gets into her adventure and history and I guess something a little simpler the more the modern world and the more reality seems to be left behind and there's something glorious about her getting swept up in this adventure and rejecting and 
I guess, paying less attention to to the world that once used to be everything to her as a as a lawyer in a big competitive law firm. Yeah. One of the the biggest running themes in the game in my eyes is the idea of people kind of like resting on their laurels and you know they were you know they had the prime of their life and now they're just kind of living out this lesser existence after the fact. The idea that it doesn't have to be that way. The right time to embrace your life is always now. One of the biggest like themes of the game going you know across the whole adventure um, and i think it builds up to that um towards the end of the game really well i think all of the characters you meet do have this sense that their life was a lot better previously and a couple of them even also get up off their feet and decide to do the things that they were always too afraid to do throughout the journey um, and i think it all really interlocks really well to each other and plays into i guess you know that atmosphere that we're talking about in summary i i think the atmosphere of this game is magnificent this is a beautiful game not just in its graphics but in the feeling it creates as you go through its world and i really loved the world of siberia and like James, every time I got to a new location, I was excited to explore it, excited to see what there was to see. There's something, yeah, there's something about this game that speaks to my heart, not just because I think it's pretty, but because I think that thematically it it speaks to adventure and the melancholy of a world that's been passed by really well. Once again, the environmental storytelling on here is is magnificent. For me, I got more from exploring its world than I did from the main story. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest things the game is trying to drive home is the idea of journey before destination, right? Like, I think that mm. the whole game you're chasing after this guy, you know, just one little stop extra on the train and he'll be there. Just one more bit and you'll be able to find this guy and finally go home. But once you finally get there, you realize that, the you know, the fun of the game was that journey on the way. And I think the game... Uh, does sell that to you really well. Um, one more thing on the atmosphere. I actually aren't as high on it as you are, uh, mostly because I think it's let down uh, in part by the sound. I think the visuals do like 80% of the heavy listing with the rest being from the story. And oftentimes when I was playing this game, I noticed a really distinct lack of ambient noise in the background, like stuff like, you know, whistling wind and birds chirping, which there was a little bit of. But so many times I just felt like the game could be even more atmospheric if there was just a bit of noise in the background. Um, sometimes, you know, there's the ambient themes that play, um, some music and then so much there's just no sound whatsoever for like long stretches you'll go through like several screens in a row without hearing anything and I found that very disconcerting at times and I thought it you know let down what was otherwise a great atmospheric experience that's yeah, very interesting maybe I wasn't paying enough attention but I distinctly remember the game having ambient noises throughout Sometimes it was very simple, like the whirring of a machine when you were in a factory. But uh, I don't recall screens with literally zero sound. But maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. Yeah, I was hearing a lot of that. You know, you'd hear the characters' footsteps, but there's nothing like, there's no ambient buzz or like, I don't know. I feel like wind was the main thing that I was like, like I felt like there should be wind in like half of the screens especially in the second area which is this like big open station uh 
it mm. just in you know and the geography appears to be a huge flat plane with nothing getting in the way of the air it just felt really bizarre to me no that you know that's a fair point i i think that there is ambient noise on most screens unless, unless i'm going crazy but you're right it, it, particularly on that level yeah it's it's very quiet far too quiet yeah and uh yeah they, they probably could have done more with the um with the ambient sound i kind of feel like when you're in the university for example that you shouldn't have ambient sound no, that's you fine. should hear yeah. the echoing of the footsteps but uh yeah i think they do an okay job at the very least even and to be fair like, i, I want to say you know this takes it down from being like one of the best ever atmospheric games to being like one of the really good ones you know what i mean like i still think it's mm. really good um i just think they could have probably pushed it even further um and i was like almost disappointed that they didn't quite get to that like you know top three ever kind of games for me because i think it could have done it um the visuals just nailed it well james let's um let's have a music break and we can talk a little bit about the music or maybe how little music there was uh what what song did you choose for us yeah because there was only about what like three or four tracks in the game maybe you know less like you can count them on one hand um so i chose the main theme of the first town um that you visit which the english dub named Faladolen. so i thought that on the whole what music there was was really good it's very uh strings heavy i'm gonna say this is a european game and i think that the choice of instruments uh matched the geography perfectly uh it was very you know long drawn out kind of notes i wouldn't say the music was sad but i will say it was kind of wistful right at times it was like longing for adventure um and it kind of did play into the you know the themes we were talking about earlier my biggest criticism again was that there's not enough music like if i had to review each song on their own merits great fantastic but as a whole soundtrack as a complete package i felt like they could have been you know a couple a handful more tracks on the soundtrack completely agree i the main issue was that there wasn't enough music uh, most of the music was played uh, as you arrived in places and during cutscenes, uh, and I think it could have done with maybe twice the number of tracks. Yeah. Uh, I will say at one point there is an opera piece, and it's not very long, but I really liked it. Like I, I've never gone to an opera or anything, but this particular piece was was beautiful. I watched the cutscene. I'm like, man, that was that was some good singing, and you know the the organs that went with it were really good as well. So. Yeah, I really enjoyed that as well. It went a lot longer than I was expecting it to go for, but I was actually glad that it went long because mm. um, the story beats that are leading up to this moment are quite substantial. Like, you do a lot of gameplay to get to this specific, you know, opera uh, show. So the fact that it did have that substantive payoff to go with it made me really happy. Um, so yeah. let's let's go back a bit. We'll play the opera track later, but let's go to... Uh, actually, let's do that first. Let's play Patrick's opera track while we're talking about it and then we can wrap back around to Valadolin's theme later so here it is
That was the opera track. I have no idea what the name of this song is. Maybe I'll add it in in editing later when I find it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one isn't in the official soundtrack. I've just just uh, asked James to splice it in for us because a lot of the um, I mean, there was I was going to pick the piece of music that starts playing when you reach the Russian area. But after listening to the full track, it only starts Russian for like the first 20 seconds and then transitions into another wistful <laughs> strings-based track. So I'm like, I, I, I don't really think this captures the atmosphere nearly as well as I remembered it. So the opera piece is my favorite piece. So James is allowing me to include it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've spoken a bit about the graphics and the sound a bit some. Do you want to get into substantive discussion about the story now? Yeah. So um, let's go into a bit more detail. So we've kind of talked about the story in vague terms, but now we're going to start moving into spoiler territory. So if, if what we've said so far sounds like something you'd be interested in, um, uh, let me just say very briefly that I don't think the gameplay of this game is very good, but it's not agonizingly bad, and I think that it's worth playing today. I'll elaborate more later. If you would really like to experience this spoiler-free, or mostly spoiler-free, you should stop listening now and skip to our gameplay session. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, James, but yeah, I don't like the gameplay, but the story and atmosphere is so good that it's worth playing. And if we're going to spoil it for you, then we'll be taking away the most substantive, enjoyable part. Yeah, the game's like 90% about the story. So, you know, I also do will recommend this game. I think it's a great experience. I, it's very short. It was only like six or seven hours and it cost me like four bucks on the Switch. I thought it was a great time. I played it you know, in two sittings, maybe. I was just absorbed the whole time. So uh, absolutely give this game a recommend. Um, and if you do want to play it, would strongly, you know, stop listening now, play the game and then come back later uh, because this will be pretty spoilerific. Okay, so I think what we'll do is we'll get into some of the specifics of the story now. So um, the idea, that the specifics of the story is that when, um, so you, you arrive, you arrive in this town and you, um, you, you find out that you need to find Hans. Hans is alive. And in the very first French town you go to, you find Anna's diary. And it kind of explains most of the youth of Hans and how he came to leave this village. Uh, what happened was that Hans discovered this toy 
It was a toy of a... It was a prehistoric toy of a boy riding a mammoth in a cave when they were very young. Uh, Anna was 11 and Hans was 7 or 8 years old. When Hans went to climb up to get the toy, he tripped and fell and seriously injured himself and he became intellectually disabled. So he became permanently with the mind of a child. But whether it was from this fall or something he always had, Hans was a mechanical genius, um, an auteur mm. on a level, you know, think Leonardo da Vinci plus, 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 to the point where Hans could design mechanical creations that are far, that are more sophisticated than creations we can create with modern computing today. And that's particularly true when you um, end up meeting an automaton um a robot that is far beyond our capabilities. He doesn't like being called a robot, Patrick. Um. No, he doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) But just to give you an idea, like he's a mega, mega mechanical genius. But the thing about Hans is that he, because he still has the mind of a child, he doesn't just create things that are, I guess, mechanically efficient. He doesn't, create a factory that looks like a factory he loves toys so everything that Hans creates is in the image of a toy and I just wanted to highlight this as our first discussion point because I think that it adds so much to the story and world um, this being an aspect of Hans's character because there's a reason that all of the fantastical creations you see uh, as like stylized after humans like when you go to the factory it's not a normal factory assembly line it's a factory assembly line which where you have like 40 human-like assembly workers and there's a wonderful little detail that Hans created these parrots as part of this creation to act as whistles to signify different things and then his dad tried to remove them saying this is redundant. Why are you literally designing these ridiculous parrots? And hands through a tantrum because to him, it was about creating this magnificent toy. Yes, magnificent, magnificent thing to look at and observe and interact with. Um, did, did you like this, James? Did you like this uh, justification? Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, you know, it actually makes some of the gameplay more enjoyable because all of the mechanical contraptions all over the world that you interact with, because they're like toys, they're kind of also like puzzles, which kind of naturally feeds into the gameplay. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed, like, the puzzles that I enjoyed the most in the game were the ones where you were interacting directly with Hans's creations, because they were so, you know, weird and, you know, offbeat, like, you you know, even simple things like doors had to be opened by these, like, mechanical intricate designs like uh, there was this door that was locked and you the only way to open it was to find a bird's egg and place it on this like little scale to balance the counterweight so that it would open the door and anything like heavier or lighter it wouldn't open the door because you know this is a toy uh, and it has to work in this bizarre way because you know it was created with the genius mind of a child um, and I think it adds so much character and personality to the game world. When you go to Russia, there is, you know, this like contraption that goes over the top of the train in order to wind the clockwork engine. And it's not like, you know, you know, this just this square thing that, you know, goes on rails over the train. It's like a giant 
dude with these arms holding like a hammer and a sickle. It's you know completely absurd, but it just adds so much personality to the areas that you're in. I loved it. It's ridiculous, but it's justified in world. Yeah. Hans has the mind of a child. He likes toys. He's because he is the only one who can create the things he can create. It's not like, and because he refuses to do it any other way, if these people that he's working with want access to his creations, they have to accept that they're going to be toy-like. Yeah. So if this was a situation in the real world, this is what would happen. He would get his, well, maybe not. Maybe there'd be a bit more arm wriggling, sorry, like pulling his arm in order to get him to do what they want him to do. But you can see how this could be a thing that happened. Yeah, it's like the whole game world is Geppetto's workshop, uh, is the way I describe it. It's just (laughs) a big toy world. Um, And, you know, Hans being so childlike also makes him kind of exploitable as a person. There's this one specific bit where he's working with the Russian military to design these like rocket launch pads because they tell him, you know, yeah, we're go- you're going to help us go to the moon because the moon's cool and fun, you know. When in reality, it's like uh, World War Two or something, and they're trying to design, you know, nuclear warhead launch platforms. Um, but mm. the idea that Hans make, yeah, and you know, but it's still super ridiculous because all these launch platforms are like these spring-loaded platforms. Um, it's, yeah. it's very very enjoyable even the train you're on like I, like we said it's literally a clockwork train you get to each station and it winds up there's a specific device at each train station that winds up your train so you can go on the next leg of your journey and if you can't access the wind up module well your train can't go anywhere <laughs> you wind your train up and then it goes as far as it can go and then it stops until you can figure out how to wind it again uh, i thought it was it was really funny and it was one of the main like uh, i guess obstacles stopping kate from exploring the world was you know getting to a station and being like oh holy shit hopefully hans has been here because there'll be like a clockwork winding mechanism somewhere so as the game goes on you find you're pursuing Hans to um, to try and get this uh, legal contract signed. But as you start following him, you start learning more and more about what Hans is trying to do. And Hans, in his moment of trying to catch, you know, get that toy of the boy riding the mammoth, has become obsessed with that. And you learn about this tribe of people called the, uh, I want to say Yokult or Yokul. The Yokuls, yeah. The Yokuls, who are a Siberian tribe who live off, who were famous, or sorry, in the game world, were thought to have domesticated and hunted mammoths. And in the in the current day in the game world, they live off uh, frozen frozen mammoths uh you know for trade and to continue eating on and your chase he was chasing a dream that perhaps the mammoths and uh are still around today because you know there's a lot of myths and legends about it so for hans his whole life the moment he left his french village was i have to find this tribe and i have to find mammoths and i think that as a motivation for Hans as a, as a as a you know driving force of the story and something that's a big part of it I thought it worked extremely well and it 
resonated well with everything else that was going on because Hans was longing for a simpler time. Hans was longing for something a little bit magical. And that's also kind of the experience that Kate is going through as she starts leaving her and, you know, becoming more and more detached from her old life as a lawyer in the big city. Um, You know, to the point where when you go to a lecture and a lecturer just explains to you everything about these tribes and these mammoths, I was watching and listening with very focused attention because I found it really interesting. The really beautiful thing about the story is this child who was um, impaired very early on had was able to have such a profound impact on the lives of everybody he touched, something that becomes mm-hmm. very, you know, apparent um, throughout the course of the game. And that kind of like childlike wonder is something that rubs off very hard onto Kate as the game progresses. And I, I really loved that progression um, from start to finish. I don't think it nailed the ending um, as well as it could have. The game ends very abruptly, in my opinion. Like, I think all the ingredients were there. Um, Like, they did all the work to make the ending work. And then they just kind of, like, I don't know, put the cake together wrong right at the end. It didn't quite fit for me. Uh... I just like it's definitely a journey before destination style game, but I still think the ending's a bit of a flaw. The reason the ending feels garbage is that it feels like half a game. Uh, they're building up this Siberia thing. You're getting, you know, as you're getting through this final obstacle, you're getting eager to reach Siberia and see the society and, you know, hopefully see the magic of the mammoths. Because I think it's pretty clear that. At some stage, you're going to see living mammoths. And it, it's funny, it's such a small... In some ways, it's a small thing. Like, it's not like you're saving the world or anything. But I think building up towards that and seeing something truly, truly magical uh, would have been wonderful. But the game just ends before you get to Siberia. It's like, all right, I'm ready for the next leg of the journey. And then the game's over. So I don't know if the developers wrote Siberia 1 and 2 and then like well we've only got enough funding for one game so we'll we'll split it into two or whatever but yeah it it ends very poorly not because Kate's personal arc isn't over but because it feels like we we just have been given half a story and this is something that the longest journey did far better it, it would be it would be like if that that game that game's about 20 hours long about twice the length of this one and all i could think while i was playing this was like why have they only given me half the game it's really weird right like you think that the game's it just ends all of a sudden right like suddenly hans is there i don't know why he's there or where he came from it's like oh you found him there was no big lead up to this happening it just did happen and the game ended and there's like a short 30 second cutscene and the credits roll it was really feel like it needed a longer outro it did it, i agree with you it feels like half a game um but the game that I really enjoyed from start to finish. Um, it's funny, we actually haven't even touched on the gameplay yet, and we've been going for about uh, 50 minutes. So, I mean, my overall thoughts on the story is that you know, it's really enjoyable, and even if the gameplay was dog shit, um, which I don't think it is, I think I would still recommend this game because I uh, loved the story to bits and the characters. So before we go into gameplay, I just wanted to jump on, like, 
what I thought was the worst part of the entire story. Okay. So, um, once again, spoilers, but I mean, by this point, you should be aware of that. At one stage, so a big arc is getting this opera singer back to um, back to this Russian factory where this person has converted the factory uh, into a s- elaborate series of organs. Sorry, elaborate organ. Not organs, that would be yeah. far more disturbing. <laughs> into an elaborate organ, you know, ripped up all the piping that was used in this mining facility and turned it to this beautiful grand organ because he so desperately wants to hear this opera singer sing again. Anyway, she, you get her back, she starts singing, and then this person drops a metal cage around her, <laughs> yeah. presumably so that she can sing forever. And then she's like, why w- w- will someone come rescue me? And you literally immediately walk up to the cage and open it with the bolt cutters that he's (laughs) convenient, that he left for you in the train. And then you use the bolt cutters that you've had this entire time on the hands of the pianist, which are the hands, which, which was the whole reason you went on this elaborate adventure in the first place. You were literally, when you walk in, you have the bolt cutters and you could have fucking used them on the hands immediately. Instead, you do this huge loop solving all these puzzles. Then you walk up, free the lady, and take the hands. And I don't know how you would write that differently, but there has to be a better fucking way than that. Just put a, like, a weird thing on the hands that he gives you as soon as you get the opera singer there. That makes it work, right? Like, I didn't mind the whole... Anything. I didn't mind the whole fuck around to get the opera singer there. Like, that like two area kind of arc like was one of the better like was my favorite part of the game i loved uh the russian area um and actually i think my favorite story wise was you meet this um this pilot uh this like ex-pilot who's kind of like drunk out of his mind on vodka all the time because he like you know everything's gone to shit and um my absolute favorite part of the game was him being like you know what i need to visit the stars before you know i'm too drunk to do anything so he gets in this rocket and asks you to like fire it into space and you just do you just fire this guy into space and he's perfectly happy with it and kate's like yep that was fun it's like that guy is going to die I know, but he he got to go to space. I'm sure some people would take that deal. Yeah. It was just so... That moment was so surreal for me. It was so funny. But, um, but there's all there's lots of weird moments like that. Like when you free the one hawk and it scares off a thousand birds. It was like I was like, all right. Oh yeah, and it's I like how, a... yeah, it's like how the zeppelin when you pull the lever, the engine doesn't start unless the birds are gone. And you free one hawk, and yep, g- goodbye two thousand birds circling around the zeppelin. It's like mm, I don't know about this. Um, yeah, I just wanted to highlight one more part of the storytelling. I swear to God, this is a video game, and we will talk about it shortly. I think at times this game is quite funny. Um, and I think that most of the humor comes from your train driver automaton, Oscar. See, Oscar <laughs> loves bureaucracy. <laughs> like, he loves bureaucracy. So anytime you want to go somewhere, you have to get your ticket stamped. But obviously there are no, you know, people manning these derelict train stations. So what Oscar will do is he'll arrive at the train station. He'll say, oh, we have to, we have to go get our ticket validated. He'll get out of the train He'll go into the ticket booth and then you'll approach him to get your ticket validated. And every single time I thought it was hilarious. 
it works within the game world. He's an automaton, so he loves following the rules. And it's a great source of comedy when Kate keeps getting more and more frustrated at Oscar's refusal just just to just drive the train. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Alrighty then, I think it's about time we moved on to some gameplay, but just before that, we're going to have another music break and we're finally going to have a listen to uh, the main theme of Valadolen, which I think is the best piece of you know, music in the game. It's, you know, the heavy on the strings and it suits the atmosphere of the game perfectly. So here it is. That was Valadolen, a piece of excellent music uh, on the very small but uh, quite good soundtrack of Siberia. So as we go into gameplay, um, there's this idea I want to touch on that we just briefly covered when I was talking about um, you know, a lot of the logic not making sense. I think that in a lot of cases, these point-and-click adventure games uh, don't have like reasonable logic at all. Um, and I used to think of this as like a huge negative on the genre, but like the more I think about it, I'm like, these surrealist worlds can't really exist without you like, you know, lo leaving that logic behind. These funny moments, these crazy scenarios, none of this would work uh, if they were so rigid in their, you know, their, their rules and their logic. Uh, every time something absurd happened in this game, I found it to be enjoyable and that there was like value in it. And I think that uh, this kind of like weird leap in logic can hurt gameplay when you get situations where like what you'll do in the game is you'll find these items all about the world. Um, and you'll think, where can I use this item to progress the plot? And a problem that a lot of point-and-click adventure games run into is that oftentimes the solution to these questions is completely nonsensical. Like, it's like, I've got this spoon, what should I do with it? And then it's like, ah, use this spoon, jam it in the fuse box to make this, you know, this car work or something ridiculous. Or like, if I give this to this guy who doesn't look like he wants it, it'll progress the plot. Um, I didn't think Siberia had this problem because I think it put its like weird leaps in logic in the right spots in the story um, so that it didn't necessarily interfere with the gameplay. Um, and generally, 
your inventory size is small enough that you're never like in this situation where you're standing in front of a person and you're clicking the first item on them and the second item on them and the third item on them until you've gone through like 30 things until it finally accepts the random knickknack it needs to progress the game. Uh, I didn't run into issues like that at all. Um, yourself? So, so generally the puzzles in Siberia and the item puzzles and figuring out what to do next is very easy. Yeah. This game is not a complicated puzzle game by any stretch. Um, however, I do have a, I guess, a joint a combined criticism of how it works in combination with something else. Let, let me explain. So... The thing about games like this, these point-and-click adventure games, are, as James said, you roam the environment, you pick up objects, you speak to people, then you use objects on environmental interactables and people in the right combinations, and hopefully something works. Uh, Most of the time in Siberia, it's pretty obvious. However, when it is not obvious, when you don't know what to do, it's a significant problem. And... Any time you play these games, there's going to be a point where you're like, where you miss something or don't know what to do or something's not obvious to you. Because in a normal puzzle game, when you don't know how to do something, the parameters are set and often you can walk away and do a different puzzle and come back to it later. In a point and click adventure game, the thing that you need to do you might need to do that thing before you can do literally anything else. Often often they're gateway puzzles and you have to do things in a specific sequential order. So you get into this funk of wandering around the environment with these items in your inventory, looking at things you've already looked at, interacting with things you've already interacted with, and nothing works because you haven't connected the do- these two single dots. Now, it's a problem exacerbated, and maybe this is different on the Nintendo Switch, but in this game, it takes fucking forever to walk move around. around. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I reckon this was probably worse on the Switch because, well, at least when I was playing, like, if you play in touch mode, you can click somewhere and Kate will walk there. Um, and on the PC, I assume with the mouse, you just click somewhere and then they walk there. Uh, on the well, there's switch a double click as well to, to run. Make them run yeah so on the yeah. switch i was moving with an analog stick the whole time so i couldn't just like click and <laughs> wait i had to like physically move kate and hold the run button to get her everywhere um so i think the real so the issue that you're trying to get to i think is that with most puzzle games when you've got a puzzle usually the things you need to solve the puzzle and the puzzle itself are always in the same place uh whereas in this game it's like you the puzzle like you could need to interact with people on the opposite side of the map in order to solve these puzzles so there is so much walking like even when you know exactly what to do even if you had a guide open it takes a while to progress the plot because you've got to walk from one place to the next and then back to that place and then back like especially if you're trying to do something for like a bunch of characters and you need to talk to all of them to get the puzzle rolling when you don't know what to do, you end up in this frustrating loop of walking from screen to screen to screen, agonizingly slowly with no way of knowing what you're actually supposed to do. 
Um, in a lot of puzzle point and click adventure games, you can actually like double click on the edge of the screen to instantly transition rather than wait for your character to move. That is not the case here. You have to wait for Kate to run from one side of the screen to the other. And oftentimes, you know, you'll need to run across four whole screens, which can take, you know, like a couple minutes of you doing nothing. Like I reckon you spend most of the time uh, playing Siberia just waiting for your character to move from one point to the other. It is easily the worst part of the game. Um, if there was instant screen transition, this game would be, you know, the gameplay would be a whole lot better. James, sorry, just to clarify, because I don't know what it's like on the Switch. When you got to a staircase, did Kate stop before the staircase and then walk up a few steps before the screen transitioned? Or did she instantly move to the next screen? Uh, she walked up. Why? Because in the way it works in the PC version, at least, is that you say you double click on a transitionary area that has a staircase. Kate needs to orientate herself with the staircase. So it, it's not like she just it just goes to the next screen. She literally stops, turns the right way to orientate herself with the staircase, and then she goes step, 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 step. And then the screen transitions. And this is something you have to deal with. And the fucking game is littered with staircases. I would say three quarters of the transitions are staircases. Okay, this is funny. because um, So the way the Switch version does it um, is that the only way to get to the next screen is to manually orientate Kate that way yourself. Because, like, say, for example, if you run Kate into the stairs... You'll go past, because you need to click on the transition point in order to activate it. If you run oh, into see. the stairs, you've gone too far. You actually have to walk backwards a bit until it highlights to click OK, so she'll already be in position. But this is really annoying, because you have to, like, fiddly... Like, there's this bit in the second area where there are these pigeons on the floor blocking a, a ladder. Um, and... Getting up that ladder is a pain in the ass because you need to like move Kate into the exact spot before pressing A to go up the ladder. If you're too close to the ladder, it doesn't work. Um, if you're on the wrong side of the ladder, it doesn't work. Nothing works unless you're standing on like the exact pixel uh, where the arrow highlights. Uh, and that's like every transition is kind of like that. I really didn't like yeah, it. So, so here's the thing. If ever you don't know what to do, you have to deal with this shit. Like, this is something that I think a lot of a lot of the time doesn't get highlighted. You have to spend time sitting there waiting, frustrated out of your mind how slowly you're actually moving around the areas that you're in. And it drove me insane. There's this one puzzle uh, where you need to um, speak to people about these grapes oh so God. that they tell you about a hidden vineyard. Now, not the the thing that really made me angry about this was I spoke to the three people that I needed to speak to when I had the book about these grapes in my inventory, but I didn't speak to them in the right order. I needed to speak to person A, then B, then C, and I spoke to C, then B, then A. And after I'd spoken to all of them, I'm like, well, I know that they've got these hidden grapes because the, the game has the dialogue be super obvious that they have a hidden vineyard. But because I didn't speak to them in the order that they wanted, it wouldn't let me progress this stupid plotline. But the thing is, when I was in that spot, I didn't know that that's what I was meant to do. 
So I then walked around everywhere, was speaking to all the other different characters. I was looking for objects to interact with. I'm like, what have I missed? Maybe there's a puzzle here that I'm not seeing, etc., etc., etc. For 20 minutes, all the time watching these slow transitions because the game had a weird logical fuck up and it just wasted my time. And that is not a good thing. That is a serious design flaw. And when you play these point and click adventure games, this is the kind of thing that will happen to you at some stage. Yeah, it's like there's no middle ground. There's either you know exactly what to do um, or you are stuck in this painful loop of like trying everything on everything until you can continue. There is no other thing. You either know what to do or you don't. And when you don't know what to do, there's like so many possibilities. Um, the puzzles that I liked in this game were the ones that were all really self-contained. Um, for example, the best puzzle in the game for me was the one, this one near the end of the game, which is like, there is this bar that has a whole bunch of drink ingredients at it, and you need to make this special cocktail so that it'll restore the voice of this opera singer. Um, and the the bar is very uh, elaborate, like it's got like a piano attached to it, and if you play the piano right, it dispenses the right drink. Because that was all like in the one spot, even if you didn't know what you were doing, you know, it was just only a matter of time until you figured it out. You knew kind of like what direction you should be looking in to solve the puzzle. It wasn't like you have no idea and you need to wander through, you know, you know, 10 minutes of screens in order to finally figure out, you know, which doohickey goes with what thing. The good puzzles are all self-contained in one location and you don't need to, you know, waste your time with wandering around. I will say with that puzzle, I didn't think to put the honey in the spa. I had to, I had to look that up. I and, figured um, that out, yeah. I, I will I will freely say that I used a walkthrough in this game. I consulted it maybe five or six times, which is a lot. You probably don't need a consultant that much. It's just after that stupid university thing where because I didn't speak to them in the right way, I wasted all that time. I Basically, if I got stuck longer than about five minutes, I just went to a walkthrough because I didn't want to deal with the game's bullshit. Okay. So I think that the best way to play this game is to play without a walkthrough, but when when if you've tried most things and spoken to most people bust out the walkthrough so you can get on with enjoying the story which is a really enjoyable part of the game yeah i think i used to walk through less than you did just because the switch version generally tells you what you kind of need to be doing most of the time with Mm. its little journal like it tells you what like missions are outstanding um which i thought was a really handy feature to have because like, I really don't object to using a walkthrough to these kinds of games. Um, with those self-contained puzzles, like, I think when you finally solve them, it feels rewarding and good. Like, you feel pleased with yourself. With these, like, I don't know which key to use with which person kind of things, I don't feel like I'm a genius because I used, you know, the grapes on these birds or something. Uh, I just feel like finally I've gotten to the next bit of the story. Uh, so, like, I don't think I'm missing out on any interesting challenge or anything by, you know, consulting a walkthrough. I think that I'm just, you know, getting on with my life. I think we're, well, at least I'm overplaying it a lot. Um, I was annoyed at the long walking times, but I never, like, 
Other than that puzzle you mentioned, which I also got stuck on because of the same reason that you mentioned, I was never infuriated with the gameplay. I think that as far as these kinds of games go, Siberia's probably on the less frustrating side. Um, yeah, I can, I totally agree with that. This is not a, this is, there's, there's games that I've played of this ilk which use moon logic, and this largely avoids that problem i just think that there's something just fundamentally kind of shitty about the genre and it manifests itself in this way like the puzzles here i i just don't really enjoy them like it it kind of feels like if you didn't even have the gameplay and it was just about walking around talking to people i think i would have enjoyed this game just as much like i like walking simulators the reason people play these walking simulators because they enjoy the story and in a lot of ways i think adventure games evolved into walking simulators because they realize you don't actually need gameplay you can just have exploring a world at your own pace and soaking in the world and yeah i think you can bear with it and deal with it and i would even say it's worth bearing with and dealing with like i really loved the story and environment but i'm not very high on the gameplay i think it's um I think it's just, it's mediocre without being awful. So structurally, I think there's something here. I don't think these older style uh, point-and-click adventures nail the formula at all. Like, I think they're quite off the mark. Um, I recently, maybe not recently, within the last five years, played a few of the Professor Layton games, which are basically mm -hmm. like, if you had a walking adventure... But every time you encountered a puzzle, it was entirely self-contained and there was no backtracking or any of that. You just, you know, walked up and somebody said, here's a puzzle and you did it, um, you know, and there was no inventory with items in it or anything like that. That was great. It was like all the benefits of the genre, like walking around and talking to people, exploring the world and getting to do fun puzzles and none of the tedium. So I do think there is room in this genre to have, you know, really great experiences. But I think this like classical style, you know, that Siberia does and a lot of older games do, um, does have some major issues that need to kind of be addressed. So for me, the best, like, games of this ilk uh, uh paradise killer and outer wilds which kind of have a not too far removed uh puzzle structure where you can discover pieces of information in one part of the world which let you solve puzzles in other parts of the world but that open structure means that if you are having issues or can't get through a certain point you can just go somewhere else and do something else and eventually, like once you're a very far way into the game, there are going to be puzzles that you need to solve. But the bulk of your time playing it, if you get stuck, you can just move on to a different puzzle and it, you know, and you gradually, you gradually get through the game. And that is far superior than these games where you can get hard gated just because you failed to join two dots. Even if you've got every single other part of the puzzle solved, this one thing will keep you back from making any progress. And I think that's just bad design. On the whole, um, I think that the gameplay was engaging. Um, and I thought that the puzzles... I was honestly fairly impressed at how logical most of the things were. There was just one or two times where it was kind of ridiculous. Um, that, you know, it made me frustrated. But, like, as a whole, compared to the rest of the genre... 
I think that Siberia does do a pretty great job of having you know, consistently logical puzzles that make sense. So I don't love it, but I found it pretty inoffensive on the whole, other than the walking, which was god-awful. Yeah, that's a fair point to make. Uh, for for a example of the genre, it's not offensive at all. If you find the genre inherently offensive, well, you're going to have some more troubles. Yeah, it's not going to change your mind at all. Um, but uh, it's definitely the kind of game where, like, you deal with the gameplay because you love the story so much. Uh, that was absolutely mm-hmm. the case for me. And although, you know, I had to play this game for the show um, and I would have played it regardless of whether I enjoyed it, um, I felt that I enjoyed the game from start to finish because of how strong the narrative was and how strong, you know, the world building and the uh, the environmental art was. Alrighty, James, uh, final impressions? Yeah, I mean, I've basically given mine. I think that Siberia is an absolutely fantastic title. Um, it has got probably, you know, one of my favorite settings. I've got to say, I was blown away by how much I enjoyed the setting. You know, this is a game that's set in like... It's set in our world, but not, but they make the world so vibrant and alive and, you know, semi-believable. It's like a fever dream from start to finish with a a really colourful, you know, cast of wistful characters that I, you know, I I adore. Um, I, you know, if you don't pick it, I'll definitely pick the sequel for the show in the future (laughs) uh, because I really want to see more of this world going forward. Huge recommend from me. I'm very high on Siberia. Uh, I'm very glad I played, I picked this one as our point adventure, point and click adventure entry instead of, I guess, the more famous Monkey Island's Day of the Tentacles because it's very different from those, which, um, you know, which really lean into the absurdist, funny humor. I uh, Instead, I got something that's uh, beautifully melancholic about uh, areas of the world where the world has passed by. And I think that, Hans's journey and Kate's journey and the places you visit all resonate really well together it all just feels um there's a real consistency in tone here and I think that uh my only problem with the story is that it doesn't finish it it only gives you half of it and ends very abruptly it's very frustrating I would all I've bought Siberia 2 I'm yet to play it but I would almost say even without playing Siberia 2 that you need to buy both parts to enjoy yeah. it. And if you see if you see Siberia 1 and Siberia 2 on special, just buy them both together. Because if you get to the end of Siberia 1 and you don't have access to the other half of the game, you're going to be really frustrated. Um, I don't like the gameplay of these games. I think that that's very obvious by now. But as James said, and in the interest of being fair, this isn't... This isn't abhorrent by any stretch, and the game does generally avoid the crazy moon logic that is a staple of the genre, and I, as a person who strongly dislikes it, was still able to tolerate it and can still recommend it as a game that you should play and a game that you should enjoy and experience. So definitely recommend it. You should check it out. It's um, It exceeded my expectations. Yeah, really, really happy with this one. So... Uh, that brings us towards the end of the show. Patrick, did you want to do a bit of uh, selling us? And then we can uh, move on to what we're playing next fortnight. 
I would be absolutely delighted to, James. Firstly, thank you to all of our lovely listeners. And we've got a few new ones, so welcome. And I hope you've enjoyed the episode. Um, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Each and every fortnight, we play these classic games of the past. And then we do a review to see if it's worth your time to play today. You can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. We've got every single episode there. And we've also got a bunch of articles that uh, we've written about the games we've played and also many modern games and retro games and all kinds of bits and pieces. So please do go check that content out. Most importantly, we would be delighted if you would join our Discord server. James and I love talking about video games, old and new, above and beyond everything else. And we'd love for you to drop by and join the conversation, even if that conversation turns into an argument. I've been getting a lot of grief lately for my uh, (laughs) repeated gaffes of calling the 4X genre four times, and I expect that to continue. So I once again want to apologize to all listeners for me saying that it's called the four times genre because it's got four E's in it. So my my deepest, most sincere apologies. I don't think I'm going to live that one down. Yeah, uh, taking the piss out of the hosts is a common occurrence on Discord, mostly Patrick. But <laughs> I, I want to I want to say I did ask James to remove that from the final edit, and James refused because apparently it was too hilarious to not leave it. It was. So, so thanks, James. Appreciate it. Oh, you're James, welcome. what what are we? What what are we playing next for now? What's what's on the agenda? Well, we are actually doing our second ever sequel episode next fortnight. Um, so our uh, the episode that has gotten the least ever downloads on our show <laughs> is our comedian <laughs> dynasty. Much to my great disappointment, as uh, its sequel, Aquinox, is a game that I have played from start to finish. You know, a few dozen times and going back for, you know, the original was something special when we did that episode. So even though uh, I don't expect it to get a lot of views, we're going back to do Aquinox because I love that game and I suspect that uh, Patrick will enjoy the, the world and the atmosphere. Or maybe not the atmosphere as much, but uh, the world building um, of Aqua as, you know, an underwater, you know, dystopian society. Well, there's plenty of atmosphere down there, James. Ah, oh, that's true. Not <laughs> not I think I, I, think like I made f- that same yeah, joke you did. on the Archimedean <laughs> Dynasty episode. Well, Archimedean Dynasty yeah. is an underwater uh, shooting adventure. You play in a you know a futuristic submarine, and you do. It's almost like a, a space combat thing set underwater, so you know you can stop and turn on a dime uh, and move with like molasses <laughs> under the the deep pressure. Um, so you know. I've always wanted to replay this game because I haven't played it in a good, like, eight years at this point. Um, Because I remember just loving the world building uh, of this series. And, you know, it was true for us when we did, uh, you know, Archimedean Dynasty last year. And I hope it'll remain true uh, for now. So hopefully just as good as I remember. Yeah, I've had a little bit of a look at Aquinox. I will say it seems different in some interesting oh my ways God, it's so uh, different <laughs> uh, archimedean dynasty was i mean it wasn't a sim but it was far more sim like with the low visibility and kind of like using your keyboard as a console almost and toggling all these nav nav beacons and all this other stuff and i looked at aquinox and it seems like a, a game where you shoot things with your submarine yeah so so I'll, i'm very interested to see the differences because archimedean dynasty was a surprise hit for me i enjoyed it a lot 
And um, this one looks like it's much easier to play, but I don't know if that will be to its detriment or not. So I'm. Uh, it, it should be interesting one way or the other. Yeah, so uh, looking forward to next Fortnite's episode quite a bit, and uh, we'll see you then on Retrospectives. Retrospectives.